Yeah, I was saying there's like this trend of all the guests that have been on today. <laughs> I've invited them multiple times and they've all been too busy. Yeah. Uh, but now we're here. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Mick. Hey, Geed. Uh, thanks for making the time, dude. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for having me. As I just said, I was... Um, I actually went the first time you invited me. I, I um, really wanted to do it because you're such a nice guy. Um, but <clears throat> then you know how life is super busy and always uh, a little bit behind. Yeah, but also I think um, when I was working at Tatudu, uh, Johan uh, Joe told me he was like, "If you want to get Mick, like just just like get him on the day, yeah, <laughs> or get him the day before, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> then you might you might get him actually. So, yeah. but it's it's true, and and that's often how it is that you kind of it, it, when you're very busy it's always hard to plan something ahead because something else and more important not that you aren't important but you know a podcast is kind of in a different category than you know meetings with clients and stuff like yeah, that. yeah or, or family or running a company or yeah, whatever right exactly. so um but mick what are you up to these days like <laughs> you're up to a lot i would imagine but uh, i'll let you prioritize it um yeah so i'm um Right now, I'm full-time on uh, Mindpool, um, and it's going really well. It's uh, fun and extremely dynamic, and the clients love it, and so everything is going well. We are 14 people now and um, hiring, so if you know a CTO... Oh, I do. I'll, I'll, we'll, talk, we'll, talk, we'll talk offline. Fantastic. Sure. And, and so <coughs> what is Mindpool about? Tell me. Um, so it's a platform where we... Um, where we collect, um, uh, where, where we harness collective intelligence. Um, so, long story short, or actually, we do have time. So we, we, have, we have time. <laughs> um, Keep it long. So, basically, when you, I, I, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with how to explain it the, the best possible way, but we, we all have brains, or at least most of us. Um, there are some uh, vaccine experts out there that we can. <laughs> be a little bit in doubt but um but uh, we all have brains and these brains are are wired not to think for us but to basically get us through life the easiest possible way and uh, in the process of doing that it's trying to save energy and that means that we have a lot of biases so if you tell me something and i like you and i think you're trustworthy that that is stored in me as, um, you know, a thumbs up, you know, and even if it's something <clears throat> that you can't really predict. So if I ask you, hey, how's the weather going to be next summer? And you say, I think it's going to be an amazing summer. And then I meet some idiot that I don't like. And, and he says, uh, I think it's going to be rainy all summer. Then I think that it's going to be sunny because the person that told, that told me that is more trustworthy. And obviously, that is a mechanism that we, that uh, that it's all about survival, basically, because <clears throat> we we then we then can you know shortcut a lot of processes. I don't have to sort of figure it out, and some things you can't figure out, but other things you can. So if I ask you what's um, you know uh, three billion uh, two hundred seventy four multiplied with seven hundred and fifty eight, if you tell me, I'll believe you. And if somebody, you know, that I don't like or don't trust, I won't believe him. And then I'll have to do the math. So that's why we, we build these relationships and, and we connect emotionally. And all of that, all these processes are obviously intuition, basically, or what we call tacit knowledge. <clears throat> so 
that that system or or pattern recognition system we have in our head that we use for predictions because that's basically what we use our brains for is to predict situations. We do thirty five thousand predictions every day based on intuition, basically. So all that intuition is called tacit knowledge, and that's <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> That's um, basically what we sense on um, on uh, on our in our daily life, in our job, in our relationships, and that is all stored in some kind of weird system, and that's what we basically base our predictions on. So, in so scientists from the early 1900s actually figured out that our predictions, if we if we scale them up in larger crowds who have some knowledge about a topic, then that combined prediction is way better than any prediction of an ind- individual. And if you put that on example, for example, if you take, let's say, a, a, a telco, a, a large telco, they would uh, probably have around 50, 40, 50% of their employees will be what you call frontline, maybe less, 30% will be called frontline, which are, you know, the people you call, the salespeople, the technicians, everything, who have a daily interaction with customer. And those those people are the sensing apparatus of the company, which means that there's a lot of knowledge, rational knowledge, but there's a lot more irrational knowledge or intuitive knowledge that they just sense, but they don't know why or how. It's just, you know, I've been here for 20 years. This is how we do it because it works. That's not based on guesswork. That's based on experience, obviously. Um, so what we're doing is we're harnessing all of this knowledge. And if you look at an organization, around 10% of the accessible uh, uh, inf- of the of the information that is stored within a company is rational knowledge, which is like spreadsheets and reports and stuff you can communicate about and things you can you know, figure out rationally. The 90% of it, which is the culture, how things are going, is there a weird vibe in here? Will we make the deadline? All of that is basically 90% of the knowledge that's in the company. So what we do is we dig into that and we give the top-level or mid-level management uh, a way to to sort of dive into that knowledge and and get the help from the employees to solve basically any problem. Uh, uh, what does it look like? Like, I mean, just just could you give me an example of what, uh, what uh, a scenario? Like a, it looks like a survey. So right now, it's a it's a basically a survey that's a bit different from other surveys because we have like feedback loops and stuff like that. But over time, we want to build it into something that's way more gamified, uh, way more quick and dirty. You just answer three questions, and then you know by two o'clock you get one more question, and then the next day you get one question. So can be fast and could be a direct communication. So we also kind of call it a one-on-one with 10,000 people every day, basically. Ah, that's cool. So, <clears throat> so Im- imagine you're a CEO of a large corporation and you have 10,000 employees. If you could have a one-on-one each week with a, a full day where you could go for a walk and just talk about how things are going, that would be the absolute smartest thing to do. I remember, um, what was his name? Henry Ford, he said, Management is taking a walk on the floor, meaning that you can't just ask people for the results and look at what they have done in sort of the rational realm. You also need to feel, and you know how it is at a 
at a Christmas party or a Friday bar stuff. That's where you find out stuff. How are things going? Why is this department not working out well? Maybe it's those two people who can't figure it out, or maybe you know, is she's in love with him, and uh, there can be all <laughs> kinds of problems that are you, not. We've seen to your some. share of most of them. I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, a lot of that is not rational, and you c- will never have it. So. Knowledge travels really slow upwards, and it's filtered a hundred times by mid-level managers who have their own biases and their own agendas and stuff. So the the, the knowledge from the front line to the top of a of an organization is so flawed, and you end up in situations where you launch a, a new product, and the front line looks at it and say, "Oh, they could have just asked us. We we knew that the clients would never buy into something like this." Mm. But nobody asked them, or they did maybe in a small m- group meeting where they had uh, croissants and coffee and talked about it for two hours, and then everybody was uh, fine, they thought. So so it's much more than just like a culture tool. It's not a culture tool. It's, it sounds like it it's can, actually... It, it can be a culture tool. It can. So if you have an organization... So what we basically do is we analyze where the, the problems or the issues or, or, or the good things are, and maybe it turns out that the culture is actually the most important. You thought it was sales, but you did never really got to a situation where you analyzed why are is sales going bad? Maybe we're too competitive. Maybe we're not not that competitive. All these kinds of things. So it can be a cultural problem, but it can also be all kind of other problems. And that's what we basically ask people and find out where are all the pain points that we need to dive into. And then we have the feedback loop, so we kind of turn it into a communication with your entire organization and and just because there's i mean it wasn't very clear was it <laughs> <laughs> no no it's it's super clear but i i think it's just because it's such a not not a complicated but it's a very complex problem you're mm. going after because you're pretty much saying like uh you're building an you're building a product or or or, or a company that's going to help companies <laughs> you know have a real-time understanding of what their entire employee yeah workforce is thinking, feeling, caring about what's important, what's not important on the product front, but also in the internal front, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's not simple. It's not it's not simple and it's but the thing is I'm not uh, I'm not uh, claiming that we can tap into the entire 90% of uh, all the knowledge, but if we can at least open doors, if we can predict deadlines that doesn't work, if we can predict um, uh, whatever product launches that should be a little bit different, if we can raise a flag and say, hey, maybe we should test this out before we launch because it seems like all our employees don't really believe in this or maybe they just see some threats uh, three months ahead. So let's tap into that and figure out what that is so we can sort of do something about it up front. So another thing we, we used to say is it's easier to drive a car when you look out the, the front window than, than in the mirror. And that's usually what you do in a company. You you look at like sales is going down. What do we do about it? But that's because it already happened. Mm. You are not looking at sales are going to go down in three months. So we let's see if we can do uh, be a little bit proactive about it. That's a that's a game changer though. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, pretty crazy. Wow, and you're a smart guy, Mick, but you didn't figure this out on your own. <laughs> so <laughs> what what team would you get together? Who's the team? Yeah, so um, so I um, I have a background in in philosophy, uh, and uh, so I have thought a lot about how we communicate and it's always been really annoying to me that we're sitting in these board meetings and we pretend that we know stuff uh, and that can 
you can create a quite um, un, unhealthy environment uh, at a board. That's where I have my experience from. I've been on a lot of boards. Uh, it can become a quite unhealthy uh, environment where people all think they're experts because apart from being board members, there's also a culture about board members that you kind of you pick the smartest ones, you you keep telling them how, how uh, smart they are and you, you fly them in from all over the world. So it's it's unless this particular one particular board member is really really good at his job, it's it's very easy to see yourself in a pleasant situation where you're the expert. So whenever people ask you something, they expect you to have an answer, and you expect yourself to have an answer, or at least you know be somewhat smarter and say, mm, I don't know. So you, but sometimes you really don't know, and 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 if you don't know that needs to to be on the table so i i took this um <clears throat> this uh, course on uh, in in Seat in uh, in uh, paris where and it was called uh, something like the international board management or something like that um and these guys were you know the guys who are the the contestants for the nobel prizes like super smart they were all philosophers by the way <laughs> uh, but another thing is that they were super Super um, actively interested in in the ability to doubt yourself constructively, and that means that. So one example was uh, this guy called Stanislav. He was a super smart guy, and he was like I think the professor or something. <coughs> he said um, whenever he, uh, he he was you know the chairman of, of many boards, whenever he had something that he wanted uh, the board members input on he sent out the pre-reads and he asked them to write their answer down not to show to anyone but ju just to have for yourself so let's say we're sitting around a table and one of the questions is what is uh, what are the sales next year's next year and your guess is 100 million so you write that down at home then you have uh, you know the the German woman, and she says, uh, my guess is uh, 13 million. And then there's another guy saying, my guess is 12 million. Now you don't want to sound like an idiot. So you change your, your, your answer because you're supposed to be smart and all of a sudden you go, oh, shit, I'm the, you know, I didn't uh, catch that. So you would probably go, oh, you know, somewhere around that. I'm saying 15. But your real answer was 100. And it's very important to get that on the table. Either... You saw something that they didn't see, or or you misunderstood something, and that's equally important because we need to get you up to track so we can kind of uh, function together. So all these small things that you can do to pressure yourself to be able to doubt and not take you know, let it um, kind of hurt your ego that's extremely important. And then it becomes a really cool thing. The more you dive into this stuff, you you realize that you get so much better as a board member if you allow yourself to doubt and not be the smartest person in the room, but just be any person. And and basically, there's not need for only smart people in the room. There's need for, for anything. Also, people can talk about the culture or things that, you know, the, the smart guys uh, don't think is important. So, <clears throat> so with a tool like this, we can get the, the, the perceived, um, the, the, the perceived development of a company or the product or sales or culture, whatever you want to uh, apply it on, but the perceived development is actually a number or, or a, 
you know, something that you can visualize yeah. in the board meeting, and then you can talk about that at least. It, it looks like the the employees don't think it's going to go well. So what do we do about that? And even if we, the smartest people in the room or in the world, even if we all agree that it's going to go really well, then it's interesting if the employees don't agree with us because then there's something wrong at least. Maybe we're not good enough to tell them what we know or stuff like that. So um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, no, no, back but, to but the question. No, but but my, maybe wh why start a company? Where did the idea come from? Like why? why yeah, bother? So, so I had all these uh, ideas, and then I met um, uh, this uh, woman who is a scientist and been she's been uh, um, uh, doing research on this topic for 15 years, and she started telling me about how she developed algorithms and ways to ask these questions and stuff. And I thought that sound, sounded super interesting because um, it's something that I have, uh, that, that, that I at least could see a, a use for in, in, in my work. So we did that, uh, so we talked about that. And then I talked to uh, Bjarke Ingels, the architect, he's a good friend of mine. And he, um, he's just always interested in new stuff and insanely uh, smart. Um, so the three of us founded the company together, and um, then we raised some money, and uh, now we are 14 people. That's awesome. And and how long has it been around, the company? Two years. Cool. I remember when I, when I was at Tattoo, you were talking about early stages of the idea. It's pretty yeah. cool to see it live and, yeah. and happening. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. And... and uh, is it only for big organizations? Is that kind of no? Like it's down to down to I think we say fifty. Okay. Because the thing is, if you're less than that, it doesn't make sense. Then you can just you know sit around a table. We do that ourselves. So people always ask me, "Do you use it in your own company?" And, and no, because I talk to everyone five times a day, and everybody talks to everyone. So we all know what we're doing. We we're very much aware if if there are things that we're worried about or things that we could change, we, like we have morning meetings and afternoon meetings and meetings meetings. And <laughs> so um, we have a lot of consultants in the company and they oh, love to have meetings. God damn um, it. But uh, they're very good. Yeah. And um, so so this is your kind of main full-time thing yeah. now, but are you still involved with uh, Tatudu and some other stuff? And Not anymore. So, uh, so I was uh, up until uh, two years ago when I started this. Uh, then I've been on the board, and so now we just raised another round, and we had, I think we had eight or nine people on the board, so we decided to cut it out, which meant that uh, both Joe and I uh, stepped off the board. So, but we we are in the same office, so um, yeah. obviously we have lunch and, together. And how are they? What are they up to? So, Tattoo is going really well. We are we we. Obviously, it's uh, not uh, the smartest uh, market to be in when a pandemic hits and everybody has to keep their distance. Then, uh, so all all the two shops were uh, shut down um, overnight, <clears throat> and also the two artists aren't the the best savers. They're better at partying, <laughs> so uh, a lot of them were really threatened on um, uh, on their income. But uh, so what we did was basically we made it free for everyone, obviously, and then we uh, tried to turn it into a platform where clients could buy paintings and stuff, so people could sit at home and and, and paint. And a lot of people, uh, luckily, uh, 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 wanted that. And then we started doing these um, uh, masterclass where we had uh, some of the best uh, artists in the world that would do a masterclass on how to draw a koi fish or or whatever. <laughs> And uh, and tattoo artists love that because that was the first. Uh, many we have had many experiences with tattoo where we realized that we were the first ones to uh, 
to take the culture seriously, I think, um, in terms of putting a ton of money behind it, do high quality productions and, and stuff like that. So we've been good at that and, and lucky in that. And it's also given us a, a sort of a place in the tattoo culture because we've always, from day one, we decided that we wanted to be 100% true to tattoo culture, which meant that we would never pressure any tattoo artist. We would always try to make life better for tattoo artists and make more money for them, make make it easier for clients to book. Um, so in the sense that if you and I wanted to get a tattoo, we would probably go to London or go to somewhere where we just found that exact tattoo artist. And that was not possible before tattoo because you had to know someone and people didn't pick up the phone and stuff. So now we have worked for the past year on the booking process and uh, and it's really uh, uh, what do you call hand-holding it uh, in the sense that we we spend a lot of uh, energy and, and uh, resources on finding the exact right tattoo for any client, which also makes it a lot better for the tattoo artist because then they know exactly what they're getting. We do payment, we do all of that, so it's... Um, it's becoming a real, uh, well-functioning uh, <laughs> booking engine, basically. Awesome! I can't wait to get Joe in here at some point and yeah. and get the details. He's he's still yeah. running it, right? Yeah. He's still yeah, CEO. Awesome! Very cool. Um, <clears throat> what was interesting when when like we first met, it was always kind of like, you know, the the Copenhagen tech scene is quite small, right? Uh, and like. It's it's always interesting. You run into the same people sometimes, and then it's like, what was always what was always interesting about you. I have uh, Jakob, uh, who was at Hippocorn. Um, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he said hi because I ran into him yesterday, oh. and and it's like people have like a good memory of of you, and and <laughs> like uh, if they remember, like depending on the party. <laughs> um, but I think that's also kind of what I the vibe I had. I was like, you know, hey, like um, let me try and catch you today if, if i get lucky and, and you made some time uh, i really appreciate that uh but it's also fun because you know i really want to like you're you're an interesting guy because i remember once you came to the office uh, and you'd like said hey you, let me show you something i'm like what i was like oh i'm in game of thrones i'm like what <laughs> how did you end up in game of thrones like <laughs> i was like okay and then you show me this little screen grab i'm like that's not you no it's me and here's this guy and here's the other guy and i was like okay so but like, how did that happen? Like, how did you end up on Game of Thrones? And, and like, what is like, how does all this shit happen? That was um, that was um, a friend of mine is uh, is uh, in Game of Thrones. He's one of the actors. Yeah. And um, and he's uh, and, and we are very close. Been working close. He's also an investor in both uh, Tatudu and and Mindpool. Oh, great. And so um, we do a lot of stuff together. And then we were. I don't n- remember exactly where we were, but we talked about... So, Bjarke is a huge Game of Thrones fan. I mean, the biggest one there is, maybe. He's read all the books five times and uh, knows... You know, he's the type of guy who knows what's going on with the... Re- like, what's his status right now on the new books and how many is he planning? And So, I, I don't know where he, he gets all this information from, but um, he's really nerdy about it. So, um, so Nikolai invited us to come and visit the the shootings uh, of uh, of uh, the last se- season eight, um, and I was there. Uh, at, I think season two or three, where it was kind of low budget. At least you know, uh, 
in the early days. Yeah, this coffee, uh, the, like the, like the one, one I have here. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> where you push the top and the sandwiches was like in a big tray. And now we came back here and it was like insane production, obviously. So it was really fun. And we were, <laughs> and they were, and then he asked if we wanted to be, you know, uh, extras. And we said, yes, yeah, sure, of course. And you don't, the thing is when you're that busy, you don't really get to have, Two uh, two nights with the boys, and you know, just go out and, and have dinner and drinks and sleep at a hotel and get up the next morning and not having to do anything. So we we had a really really good time, we really enjoyed it, and obviously we we're excited about the show. I'm a big fan of the show. As well. I mean, it's I'm a fan of the show. I'm a very big fan of the show, but it's just hard to compare with Bjarke. So um, yeah, so just, <laughs> in uh, comparison, you're not really a fan. I'll just go with big fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um. But so so we had to send our measures and you know our size and stuff, and they were so thorough. We had like three layers of everything, and we went to the makeup, and there was like a thousand of us, and it was crazy. And they went through everybody, and then we got our clothes, and I looked like a complete idiot. And I was, so, I was like, "Fuck! How did, I, how did I end up in this situation?" And then I looked at Bjarke, and he was just the start of King's Landing. He looked so hot, and everything was just perfect. And he, I mean, he should have just taken that clothes home with him. Um, and then, and and I was like a little bit envious, like just fucking typical. And you always end up, and I looked like an idiot. And then we walked out, and we had to walk past this uh, guy. Who, who would kind of uh, okay if if we looked uh, Kingslandish enough, uh, and then uh, and I passed because I looked like an idiot, <laughs> and then <laughs> Bjarke came out and he said, uh, "Try this on," and then he just put this yellow little leather hat <laughs> on his head and he looked like an idiot. I said, "Yeah, that's better." God, fuck. So um, that was uh, a lot of fun. So that's actually the, the hat we've been uh, looking for. We tried to spot ourselves, but we were in it. it took yeah, some, it took some time to to find us. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 always it's always fun with these kind of big productions. Uh, you know, when when you're like uh, when you know some people and you get invited and you kind of get to be part of it. It's it's always fun. You have a little story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the funny thing is, so <clears throat> I think we haven't really um, verified that, but there was so. This scene was the one where the dragons were attacking King's Landing. So everybody's running and scared and, you know, everything was burning and everybody would eventually die. Uh, and then to cause some chaos and we were all running down the, the like the center street or whatever. Then to cause some chaos, he said, hey, "Can we'll just uh, get some of you to run the other way just to make a more chaotic scene, I assume. Um and then we were tapped on the shoulder, which I think is because we were Nikolai's friend, so that would make it easier for us to find ourselves because it would be a very chaotic scene. Uh, and then uh, first, and you know, to set up a take would take like half an hour to 45 minutes. Everybody had a position. Everybody had to do the same things over again. They were so um, so strict on everything. And then we started running. You were like, to, you know, everybody get ready, action. And then we started running. We knew exactly where to run and stuff. And then we came back and said, all right, cool. And he had like a megaphone because it was a huge set. And then he said, um, all right, that was uh, really good. Uh, there's one of you guys who's uh, running the other way who's laughing. <laughs> this is a problem because you're, you know, you're afraid you're running for your life. And then I looked at Bjarg and he was just one big <laughs> smile and said, I can't stop laughing. And then the next take, I was, <laughs> we started running again. It took like 45 minutes to set up again. And then we started running. And then there was this 
annoying guy who's always bumping into me. He kind of made it his thing to bump into me, which was a little bit annoying because he was a big guy. So he, he kind of hit me, and I tried to to cut around him. And then <laughs> I I thought I just missed the camera by you know an inch. And um, I came back, and I walked back and said, to Bjarke, I, I almost hit the camera, and said, <clears throat> yeah, that was good. Uh, one of you guys ran straight into the camera. <laughs> All right, that's me. So, uh, yeah, we Do were, it again. That was an expensive day to uh, have uh, Nikolai bring his friends. <laughs> they're they're going to be like, oh, please never bring your friends yeah, again. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> we were the last ones. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you probably don't remember this, but um, we had a little walk next to the o- next to the office where we one one day, and you took me to one of the cafes, like in the back. One of your friends has a mm-hmm. cycle shop or something yeah. in a cafe. And and like Velo Paris. That's it, yeah, Velo. Shout out. <laughs> uh but and, and, and you sort of like I mean like you mentioned Bjarke Engels is a friend of yours, and now you know, the actor Nikolai uh, is also a friend of yours. Uh and you talked about sort of this support system that you and a bunch of the friends you guys grew up together mm-hmm. had and, and you've all kind of reached a pretty, you know, high level uh, in your in your careers. How did that come about? Like, how did that you sort of you know being open with each other and and what and what was that? Because I remember you told me this story and I said, like, that's kind of amazing that you know a bunch of you guys got together and yeah. and sort of started like supporting each other <coughs> in a very emo- in emotional ways as well. I think um, it's it's a very uh, interesting question and I thought a lot about it because I do have uh, quite a lot of, of successful friends. I think the 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 main reason that we stayed i think when you when you're young um you know 12 to 18 you you meet so many people in in school and uh, football and whatever you meet so the 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 input is so big and then you pick out the ones that you like and you have to have something in common or you at least you need to have fun um and i think that's basically it so when i look at my groups of friends because they are I mean they're quite connected but they're obviously also uh, groups um, the main uh, or the what do you call the common denominator I think is a sense of humor uh, I, we I have fun with all my friends and it's um, not very political uh, correct humor but it's super so I have I, I really I dare to say I have the funniest friends in the world because so many of them, I can cry for hours and hours uh, laughing from basically all my friends. They're super, super funny. And then I think they're also all really nerdy and really specific. And then um, and then I think they're good at doubting, as we talked about in the beginning. They're really good at, at asking questions and listening. And I think my... Uh, group of friends are really good at supporting each other and helping each other out also with emotional problems so i've i've as we all have i've also met other groups of guys and maybe been invited to something and and you know and they're super nice and likable but you end up you often end up in the situation where you kind of feel you have to put on a mask and you know talk about football or or whatever which can be absolutely fine but but or or maybe there's like an alpha male competition going on and it's something that can be fun and and interesting for a while but it's also exhausting for me at least so it, it takes something from me and then i kind of 
reload with my friends where where I can you know just be myself and I think that's something that that I have um, intuitively sought in in friends people who are are good at at sharing their doubts and discussing things and taking the input they can and then doing something and then obviously I think if you look at for example all the actors so when I moved out from uh, from uh, uh, when I moved to Copenhagen when I was 19 I moved in with a bunch of uh, uh, aspiring actors they hadn't uh, kind of joined the theater school yet but they did so I'm just for the next uh, five and ten years I met a lot of actors and and uh, directors and stuff because that was kind of an, the opening um and obviously, if they are good friends, they help each other. They say, oh, hey, you, maybe you should try him in that role or maybe you should do this, this and that. So it is a, a very small community. But also, if you look on the business side, it's it's extremely helpful to be able to discuss all your everyday decisions and things you do. Right now, I'm in a very uh, big uh, um you can call it management process, and I have so many people that I can just call and ask, and they spend hours and hours talking about it. And some of the, these people are really, really successful. Some of these people have tried it before, so it's it's an amazing help. And that's why you have you have like um, what is it called? Um, uh, these uh, uh, groups, VL groups. You know what that is? No. Virksomhedsleder okay. means a business manager group. Oh, yeah, like, like network groups or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And and there you are. And I've been in one of these. Uh, uh, but you always end up with 50 people that you don't know, that you have nothing in common with other than you're invited by this person. And they're, they're super nice, but, but you don't have the emotional connection. So basically, to, to pardon my friends, you don't really give a shit because you have your own friends. So these groups are really good if you... If you don't have a network, I, I assume if you move somewhere else or if you just move from Jutland to here or whatever, and and, and it can be good. I, I have a you know, um, I still have. I'm, I'm still in touch with with some of these people, and and, and one of them, Dennis, is is even my good friend. <coughs> but the rest of them are you know, um, I you know, I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, so so I think that what what I have been fortunate enough to have with my friends is this uh, emotional uh, tie to to people that I know want the best thing for me so whatever uh, as we talked about uh, the how the how the brain works whatever they do or or tell me I know that they want to help me basically so their input is so much more valuable than you know any uh, uh, consultant I can uh, pay to to guide me in something <clears throat> and it's also it, t it touches on something which I think I mean you're kind of I not say codifying but you're trying to make it better in organizations right mm. but but like it's the same with me like one of my best friends he's working for the American forestry organization now who the fuck is that like, <laughs> like okay <laughs> saving forests amazing mission but I'm like I've never heard of that in my life mm. and and what's what's interesting is like I'll talk to him about everything mm-hmm you know, and and his feedback, just, just because he knows me, mm. <laughs> and it's I can be very honest with him, and just the fact that I'm honest with him, and I'm allowed to sort of put my own bullshit guard down, mm -hmm. that itself is helpful. Yeah, 
You know, it doesn't mean that he has to be the expert in how to build, uh, you know, UX for uh, the next fitness app that I'm trying to help someone launch. That's mm-hmm. fine. Or a management issue or whatever. The trust, as you said, I think earlier about sort of, you know, like uh, we don't know the answer anyway. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like no one can predict the future with 100% certainty, uh, at least not that I know yet. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like might as well if you're going to have um, a chance of influencing it, you might as well have someone who you trust help yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also it can become like a coach thing. So I just went on this um, surf trip to uh, Morocco with a bunch of uh, absolutely amazing guys and this is actually it's a kind of weird because it's the first time in in my old man life where i i made a group of new friends where who are actually friends who was someone that i felt that i could open up with and talk to uh, basically right away because it came you know we were all connected by this one good friend we all have in common and he's extremely good at, at people and the nicest guy on the planet So he invited all of his best friends, and um, and we went on this uh, surf trip. So one of the guys, Jacob, who was very very uh, high level in in Danish uh, business life, he actually mentioned that that one of his best um, advisors was his childhood friend, who didn't have any idea about what he was doing, but he knew him really well, and they'd been talking about what he did for 15 years. So now he was good enough to he 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 could see although he didn't know anything about what the you know whatever decision Jacob was making you say isn't this like that time where you did that with whatever <laughs> and they say, oh maybe you're right and so he could basically be play ball with him and and that's much better uh, for advice than you know someone who tells you what to do because nobody knows exactly as you said what to do yeah and 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 it's also like business is like fucking 3d chess sometimes right it's mm. like it's like yeah you know like you get the best team you get the best product you get the best investors you know you raise a lot of money uh bad fucking timing okay. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and then you have luck and that then, and can you know kill everything yeah and then you exactly and i think uh we had another entrepreneur here uh, just uh before you and, and and he was talking about something similar as well where it's like you know you can you only connect the dots like looking backwards mm, right yeah, like yeah. and i think your company is kind of doing that <laughs> like yeah. helping people connect the dots you know looking forwards exactly and i think and i think it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of indicative of you know also the world is so complex now but it's us fucking monkeys that are running it <laughs> right yeah, yeah. so we need we need someone to like help us be like okay calm down yeah, you're yeah. good enough yeah relax go try it exactly <laughs> right that's actually something i've that i have experience that the higher level you get in you could say the business hierarchy the more open they are to emotional decisions things that are not as they seem they are so they they're but i would would always say they're more spiritual in the sense of decision making because they know that i can kind of see if i can figure everything out but that's only 25% 25% of of what I can do then I need to to learn how to to oh, I mean even if you talk to <clears throat> when you talk to people who've been traveling a lot and doing business all over the world they would always start telling you stories about business culture because they know that it's insanely important if you you know 
take the business card with two hands or you drink tea or you get drunk the night before and get up early or go to the sauna or whatever. All these stories are extremely important. That's why those are the stories they tell you. If if it was a rational world, then it wouldn't matter. It would, you know, at the end of the day, just be about how money did, did how much money did we make. But a lot of these businesses are family-owned businesses, or there are different cultural values within the the, the the community. So, so all of these soft measures are extremely important, and, and that's uh, that's something that I have a little theory that when people are secure enough in themselves and know that they're good at it, then they start uh, opening up to to being doubtful about stuff. And that's how, it, you know, the person who says, I know everything about everything, you, the first thing you think, ah, maybe not everything, my friend. But um, so whenever people need to prove themselves or be the smartest, that's always because they're not entirely sure themselves. Because people who are sure, they are super doubtful, just like uh, Socrates all that I know is that I don't know anything. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a very um, good quote that we could all learn from. Very much so. And I think it's also like as a, I mean, not only as an entrepreneur, just as anyone who's doing anything, right? Like anything, you're putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And, and like we, the word imposter syndrome has kind of become quite common knowledge these days in the entrepreneur world at least. And it is exactly what you're saying. Mm. It's just that, you think you're like, am I supposed to be here? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, like, how am I in this position? You know, yeah. how did this happen? And then I think there's this there's this balance that as you I think you you put it better than I've heard said, like sort of doubting yourself into the right thing, right? Mm. Or, or sort mm. of um, this analogy of answering in private and then talking about it in public, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is kind of very important. But like, how do you do that? I I'm I th- I mean I think you can, I I don't think you can fake it I think you need to to feel it basically and then obviously there's there are situations where where you need to 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 act something out so I'm, I've always wondered why politicians never say I don't know I would really like to know more about this uh, but I I'm you know or it could be either or because I guess most uh, decisions in politics could be either or. It's never black or white. <clears throat> but I, I assume since they never do that, I assume that some analysts, uh, the analysts have come back with such that you need to say this. You need to say you're 100% sure about this, although you're not. But that shows that you're strong and that makes people vote for you. And that's obviously bullshit. And that's a big problem in democracy, I think, because it would be so much smarter if if politicians would would stand up and say, we don't know, or we, I agree with my opponent, I think that's uh, really good. So actually, I think you should <laughs> applaud him for this decision because in this case, I actually agree. But instead, they spend so much time on figuring out where they don't agree and how they can take the opposite position. And it's at the end of the day, you just get tired of it because you know they're lying and you know that that they're n- never getting to any results in, in this way. So they're not uh, really working together as they should. And imagine how they could help each other and create a better world. And then they could figure all those, you know, the the, the titles out uh, afterwards. But if they really were there to, to create a better world, then they should start working together. And now the, the, the end result is that 
everybody doubts everything a politician says, and nobody right now nobody knows who they're going to vote for because it's it's just become so ridiculous. But it's it's like I said, right? It's like the monkeys are driving the car, right? It's <laughs> or, or or whatever, like the plane, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? It's like you're you're focused on the wrong thing, right? Yeah. It's kind of like it's a popularity contest, but actually it's not a popularity contest. It's about like fucking fixing the problems yeah yeah and exactly. yeah <laughs> and there gets, is a country to run yeah there and that's what gets forgotten about and i think like unfortunately like you know and uh, we've now gotten a little political so let's just dive in right like uh like you know you want a benevolent dictatorship like eventually you want like someone who's like hey like we know the problems mm. we'll fix it mm. and and we'll hear what you want to say and like uh, you know we'll get the best people to do the work uh, and that's the promise of democracy, right? Yeah. But like so many times, it doesn't happen. No, you exactly. know, <laughs> and 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 it's like I grew up in a country <coughs> where, you know, I mean, India is a pretty great country, but we have some pretty fucking terrible politicians, right? Like, <laughs> and 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 you know, we we have ones that are great at getting votes. We have ones that are, you know, bad at getting votes, have great ideas, and end up doing great stuff in nonprofit. Hmm. But whether you like it or not. Right, it's a popularity contest in most countries, and especially in a country of like 1.3 billion people, it's a big popularity contest. And absolutely, and it's like I lost uh, trust in politics a long time ago. So mm-hmm. for me, it was just like in India, at least growing up, you know, everybody knows that you can't expect anything from the government. It's oh. like all the best hospital, all the hospitals are private, <laughs> the <laughs> ones that are working. Yeah. Uh, you know, the money is the language that makes sense. And and if you want to have any power or any value in the world, uh, you know, go fucking make some money, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And 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 that kind of mentality is kind of uh, you've been to India, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, like people are like when they arrive on the streets, they're like, oh, everyone's like haggling me. I'm like, what do you expect? Yeah. Like this is the real world, right? For them, there's nothing else. Like it's, scary. it's either like, hey, like let me let me try to, you know, be nice to this guy, with the hope that you know he gives me some money maybe, or I can just steal it from him. Yeah. Like, what is the better like short term gain? Yeah, it's probably only just, about the money. Yeah, <laughs> probably steal it. And I think like, I think as you said earlier, right? Like when you're secure, you know, you realize kind of the real stuff that matters. Mm. But when you're kind of born into insecurity and grew up in insecurity, it takes a very high level of you know being secure absolutely and I'll t- uh, and I also realize that I speak from an insanely privileged uh, point I've never uh, uh, went without food for a day in my life and uh, I've uh, and I've you know I, I I think I live in the the best country to live in uh, although I d- disagree with many of the things that are happening here but um, but compared to the rest of the world we are insanely lucky Um but yeah, I think maybe that the money is the underlying value that everyone can agree on, uh, which is very problematic because then it becomes. I'm just uh, watching a Squid Game. Have you seen that? No, I've heard good oh. things about it. It's amazing, but it's you know, it's fucking insane. But it's all about that. It's all about uh, you know what would you do for money and uh, and how much value we put into to money, and that makes sense if you can't eat or your children can't eat doesn't really make that much sense if you are in my position for example i i don't i you know i have a nice house and a nice car and and everything is working out so more money is a weird concept when you think about it 
I, I remember my grandfather, who was um, uh, uh, kind of my uh, my mentor uh, uh, in this life. Before he he died in '92, I had a week alone with him at the hospital. I was there every uh, morning from nine till till five, and he and he knew he was going to die. He had cancer all over, and he he told me so many things that I still remember to this day. And one of them was, he said, you know, nobody has ever been in the position that I'm in now and thought I should have made more money. No, nobody has ever thought that. Every, everybody thinks. I should have spent more time with the family, with my friends. I should have done more this, this, and that. Or even, you know, written books to be remembered. Nobody thinks I should have made more money. So money is super nice to have. And I'm not trying to to, uh, kind of uh, um, neglect it in the sense that if you need, you need a house to to stay in. You need uh, money. You need education. You need clothes. and, and, And in some parts of the world, you almost need the new iPhone and stuff like that, although it, it may sound ridiculous, but it's also a socially cult- cultural thing that, that um, in terms of feeling that you belong, it's it's never nice to be poor, uh, even if that is uh, relatively poor. But, you know, nobody's poor compared to India, obviously. But you can obviously be poor if you go to a school here and you don't have the right clothes or, or whatever, and that's not nice uh, anyway. But if you are in a situation where you have all these things, then money becomes becomes less and less important. But we have nothing to replace it with, other in small communities where we have, where we create our own values. And if we talk about my the group of friends, one of them could be to be funny. And I mean, people have put <laughs> tremendous uh, uh, effort and resources into editing small movie clips that were only sent to, we have, I have uh, with five other friends, we have this little Facebook group, we're only six of us, and this has been running for, I don't know, 10 years, and there's been sp- put so much effort and resource into doing these small videos that was only sent out to, you know, anyone's five best friends, and they are insanely funny, because that's a, then that's a new, uh, a set of value and also something you can compete on, but in a but in a very positive competition because it's you know super funny all the time. So um, so we you can locally we can create other values, but if we think about nationally or or globally, it's very hard to see what other value we can all agree on. It can't be religion, obviously, because then we start killing each other. Um, Love is very hard to to put a number on, so it's at least hard to compete on unless it's very uh, local, um, and that's that's a huge problem. So money becomes so important, and that that sets up us sets us up for catastrophe in many ways because then we end up with problems with the climate, and nobody can agree to spend the money that we fucking need to spend. And we're not even talking about something that lies uh, that that happens in two hundred years. We're talking about our kids' future. We're talking about twenty years from now. My kid will be hanging out at, at bars and and uh, hitting on on uh, on girls or guys. Um, the world in twenty years doesn't seem very as, as a very nice place to live in. Not here, especially not in the rest of the world. So if if I'm if I'm a hundred percent egocentric and I want uh, him to travel the world and experience cultures and other people like I've been fortunate enough to, that's probably not going to happen unless we do something now. But we really don't give a shit. 
and <clears throat> it's also kind of like you know if we just like in a country like india you have like the world's fourth richest man and a bunch of other billionaires mm-hmm. uh, many uh, and then you have a lot of poor people and like i've been privileged enough to like hang out literally you know across the with across, that guy with that guy and his and his kids unfortunately <laughs> uh, and and sort of you know people that on the street and i think you know at sometimes you're like you know the guy or the woman on the street who's trying to like you know just survive has never heard of the word stress mm-hmm. you know yeah. like they're like stress what are you talking about <laughs> fucking live baby <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like exactly. you know like i like we're just trying to survive and make it right yeah. just trying to like get to the next day and then the fucking game we're in when you get to the next day and when you make <clears> it and when you have enough of those days where if you stop working you're fine Mm. You know, some of us are fine for generations. Some mm. of us are fine for the next five, ten years. If you don't work another day, mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, oh, now the real shit comes out. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're, you're, and and then it's also like, you know, the 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 sustainability thing is all also about like the problem is, you know, it's the science is clear, but the decision makers don't have the balls to do what needs to be done or. You no, know. But that's that's because of our flawed system. So basically because we don't have that set of values that we can all agree on that it has some kind of objective value to <coughs> to do something good for the environment or to actively take part of a solution. Because we don't have that, we only have the monetary system. And the politicians are so, pardon my friends, ballsless, if that's a word. Oh, they no. don't have balls <laughs> enough to... To make those decisions, they're just afraid of not getting elected. So the thing is, so whatever is common is that we have this, we, you know, we call it the, the selfish gene. We just, we want to uh, maintain ourselves and our surroundings, but not even our kids' future, just our own, basically. We're insanely selfish. So if somebody tells us we need to invest 80 billion kroners in the environment, you, you won't get elected. So they, so that's why they don't do anything about it, which is extremely depressing. But luckily, we we do have very good people. And the the guy I mentioned before who, who arranged this, a surf trip in Morocco, him and I, we have um, organized this little um, uh, environmental group of influential people who are also uh, insanely uh, bright and and um, and uh, and well off, uh, most of them. Um, and we we sit down every two months, three months, and talk out what can we do, what what uh, projects can we support, how can we use our own influence to make the world a better place. And I think that small groups like that will pop up because eventually, if and this is again, I'm not expecting any of this to come out of India or China or these places where people have enough pro- or Africa where people have enough problems as it is. But in our part of the world, or in, in, in not necessarily our part of the world, but in in our s- small, lucky communities, I think there is an increased understanding of even even if you are a you know Trumpist psychopath from Texas, at some point you will start to think, wait a minute, I have uh, two kids, and they're going to grow up in a world where people are going to shoot each other, or you know whatever. Uh, uh, I, you know, there are many things that can happen. Um, so maybe just for myself, I should start supporting this. So I think a lot of wealthy people and organizations and markets and businesses will s- people start buying green, just like um, 
don't know, 10 years ago when, or 50, I don't know when it was, when we started hearing about uh, ecological milk and cheese and meat and stuff, of vegetables. It was like, uh, all right, then if you were, you know, politically correct and a uh, hipster Copenhagen type, you would buy that. Now it's impossible. You can't get <laughs> get a liter of milk if it's not ecological. So it's just become, and that's all driven by the market, basically, because that's what people want. And I think, so I think we are standing in front of a new revolution that is going to be even more um, profound than the digital revolution. So if you remember when the first time you had your ISDN modem and you figured out, hey, I can you know write emails, and oh, that's amazing. He already has it, and he's... Um, That was, I remember when I th- when I experienced that, I thought, okay, this is crazy. I mean, this little computer can contain all of the information of all people in Denmark. That's you know that blew my mind. <clears throat> so, so I knew that something big was going to happen. I knew that I could, you know, I downloaded uh, my school papers from these uh, uh, telnet servers, and uh, you know nobody could find out because it was only the kids who <laughs> figured that out. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, but but then you realized, wait a minute, if you can do this, and I can, you know, have this Spanish paper from someone in in Jutland, and you know, and get an A, uh, uh, then anything is possible in this world. Obviously, I didn't know what was possible. I didn't know that we would. Eventually, have a Bitcoin, and and you know probably in in the near future, have a microchips implanted and stuff. But you, it's very hard to see how you go back from the digital uh, revolution uh, back to paper. That's never going to happen, obviously. But but that that whole revolution is based on a nice to have because we now invented a technology that made it possible, <coughs> and that's um. And that made the world smarter and easier, at least we thought. And then we came up with a lot of new problems. But now we have a need to have revolution because you know we'll fucking die, or you know most people will die if we don't do it. So I think as we are sitting now and talking about uh, all these people that are eating vegan food or all these things that are sort of the new pop-ups, I think in 10 years we. I mean, we'll have to explain our kids. Do you know we actually had meat when 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 you were born? People were eating meat. You could buy meat in the supermarket, and they were like, "Are you crazy?" Just like if you tell them that, like my parents smoked in the car when I was there. Like today, you'd get arrested for it. So I think, and and so many other things. It's probably going to be illegal to sail, uh, to transport, uh, you know, uh, anything by boat from from China, uh, for example. So there's so many in the in the um, supply chain and everything that is that we need to to pass laws on and 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 make illegal basically so the world will look completely different in 10 years and um, I couldn't agree more and I'm but that's all based on market the politicians are the last one to figure that out and I'm actually I'm doing a, the project with the UNDP and the, these guys are obviously amazing but and to hear them having discussions with They have all their local offices, obviously, having discussions with the politicians. They're just like, please, because a lot of politicians know this, and and they they actually come from a good place where the reason they started in politics was because they wanted to change the world for something better. But now they're just a part of a game, and they realize that this is not functioning anymore. And the UN is in itself very uh, 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 politically infected, you can say. So, 
So all these bureaucracies are always the last one to act. But luckily, we have the markets and we have people who can push agendas and stuff. So I think that's where uh, you know I'm gonna uh, place my money and uh, same here. Hope for the better. Same here. And I mean, I think if you look at the sort of industrial revolution, right? It didn't really have much new technology. Mm. It just scaled ancient technology. Yeah. Like farming has been done the same way for two thousand years. You know, people have been killing cattle for hundreds of thousands of years the same way, killing animals, eating mm. them. Uh, and we have so much abundance of resource, we've only tapped into and exhausted the worst part of it. Hmm. I mean, like, there's so much nitrogen, so much oxygen, you can do whatever you want. You can literally power ourselves for billions of years, no problem, hmm. right? And now, in the last, say, 40, 50 years, like, molecular science is getting better, like, you know, software, hardware, engineering. I mean... And there's breakthrough in AI now with sort of, you know, figuring out proteins and stuff like that. I mean, there's just, like like you said, a bigger revolution than digital. Yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. It is already happening. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just like, for me as well, the reason I got into building startups and working in the startup world, in the tech world, is like, I could sit down in a room with three guys or, or girls, normally it was guys actually, <laughs> you know, and then uh, you just would say, okay, like, we're going to solve a problem. Let's go. Let's just go do it. Mm. Like, let's. Okay, you do the software. I'll figure out the money. You get this. Let's go do it. Yeah, yeah. And then, if you did it right and you were lucky and all the other shit, you know, fell into place, you changed an industry. Yeah. yeah. Or you changed a part of the way the world worked. And like before that, you had to sort of know someone to know someone to know someone, and it was like you had to go down this game. Yeah. yeah. You know, which the politicians are still playing, most of them. Um, but that's kind of opening up more and more, and and it's it's, it's, it's very much the case. <coughs> and if you if, you, if we talk about energy, we can see that we have Orsted, uh, we have uh, co-making infrastructure partners that are we are first movers in in the world of uh, wind or all kinds of, of alternative energy forms, and that it's really working. We <coughs> our biggest problem is again the politicians. So in the states alone. They subsidize the black energy market with $500 billion a year. That's half a trillion dollars a year that's used for fossil fuel subsidies because <laughs> they don't want to lose votes in you know, Texas and Pennsylvania, I guess. And there can be many reasons for it. But basically subsidizing the, the black energy because green energy is already cheaper. But because it's cheaper, then they can compete then the you know the the oil and gas industry can compete with the green energy, so they're subsidized, and they're subsidized all over the world, and stuff like that just has to happen, that or, or stop happening. That's just fucking insane, basically. Mm. Imagine what we could, with a half a trillion dollars is enough money to take people out of extreme poverty. A year. Yeah, yeah, a <laughs> year. Like, I mean, that's one time. Yeah, exactly. that's one investment, not a yeah. year. So, um, so that has has got to stop, and that's something that. That I hope and 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 that I'm working actively on, and and the UNDP is working actively on, seeing if we can at least plant a seed, of thinking. Okay, what's, that's what's the name of that organization, or, or how do people figure out what it is? Where do where uh, do it's a see? secret for now. Okay, so, uh, cool. But uh, very soon, uh, I think we, we're going to launch it at the Web Summit. So, oh, um, nice, so, exciting, cool. Uh, so, um, and you can yeah. come back and talk about it later with uh, yeah. someone else who's part of it. Exactly. Uh, but Mick, I think it's a good place to end it. Uh, we talked about some really good stuff, uh, and thank you so much for being generous with your time. And uh, absolutely, I people should uh, follow you 
wherever they can find you on the street on the street as well <laughs> <laughs> you're open to being followed on the street yeah, so yeah, exactly. it's all good <laughs> it's fine. thanks so much Mick thank you yeah. Cheers. bye everybody thank you bye